So with all that said, let's turn to our text for today. We are in Mark chapter 3. And I'm going to read this. Please pray for me. I'm still battling a cough, so I'm not feeling real confident this morning with this. We'll see if I can get through it or not. Mark 3, we're going to read verses 7 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boenerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us this morning to this amazing gospel once again to learn more about your son, Jesus. We ask you this morning to give us the grace to understand It's hard to admit that we're broken and wounded, and it's even harder to admit that we need you. So help us to consider what it really means to follow Christ and to hear your word. Thank you that today we're learning once again from John Mark, a follower of Jesus, as he brings us the earliest eyewitness accounts of the life of Christ. Help us to hear it, understand it, believe it, and obey it. And so we pray, speak through the gospel of Mark this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, Help us see Jesus, for in his name we pray, amen and amen. Back in the late fall of 2017, in a cheerful rehearsal room at Temple University, a few dozen professional musicians inspected the instruments that they would be playing to debut an audacious piece of music by Pulitzer Prize winning composer David Lang. The composition is called Symphony for a Broken Orchestra. And fittingly, all the instruments are broken. Over 1,000 damaged instruments had been languishing in what became known as an instrument graveyard in Philadelphia's school system. It lacked the funds to fix them, having endured budget cuts which cut their instrumental music budget from $1.3 million in 2007 to $50,000 in 2017. And so, a couple years ago, 400 of these instruments were played in a concert performance 
by musicians ranging from members of the Philadelphia Orchestra to public school kids. The youngest was a nine-year-old cellist, the oldest an 82-year-old oboist. And the goal is to get these broken instruments repaired and back to kids. The composer of the symphony, David Lang, won a Pulitzer Prize for music composition in 2008 and was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Song in 2018. The symphony's a little less glitzy, um, for sure, but Lang agreed to the project immediately. He said, I really thought of this whole thing as kind of a healing exercise. From the very beginning, I made everyone here refer to these instruments as wounded instruments. Cracked cellos, vandalized violins, flutes that gasp and leak, horns with broken valves. Lang worked with the musicians to catalog 1,500 instruments, searching for the ones that were wounded in just the right way. I'm trying to put the brokenness in the foreground. I don't want to avoid the things that are broken. I don't want to make these instruments sound like we don't notice how changed they are. And so I tried to ask for things that would highlight the fact that they are changed. <clears throat> because instruments, uh, these instruments were so difficult to play, musicians have to play them any way they can. And Long's score demands this unique creativity from musicians whose instruments are unable to play the required notes. He said, it may take them several tries to find a way to get their instrument to deliver the note. And all of those tries are what makes this piece work. Working on this symphony reminded Lang of something fundamental about playing music in a group. He says, when you play an instrument in a group, this is the lesson you're learning. I have a connection to the person next to me, and our connection is based on our combined ability to build something beautiful. And that's something we really need, he said. So 400 players marched in, members of the Philadelphia Orchestra to street musicians, all carrying instruments from the schools. One cello, all polished up for the occasion, just had a few dangling strings and was only good for percussion. One violin was broken in half, and the person used the bow and the neck of the violin as drumsticks and played the violin like a drum. One trumpet was bandaged with blue duct tape. An upright bass had the distant memory of a fingerboard. And one French horn was literally rusty. Oh man, this thing is so beat up, said jazz musician Brent White as he tried out scales on a battered trombone which is missing a slide. That's the trombone that he played. Now, Brent White has toured with top-tier jazz groups, but he learned to play music in the school system in Philadelphia. He says, I remember some of the broken instruments I had to play in elementary and middle school, and it's coming full circle now. You can take that. So the beginning of the piece is pure percussion. The players tapping on their instruments, creating this soft rumble, whether tapping on wood or metal flutes. And waves of sound traveled from one section to the other. They placed the orchestra in a giant circle with the conductor in the middle. 
And these waves of sound started to come together with an aggression that suggested the instruments were trying to escape, maybe from their own infirmary. A single tone emerged, then another like an orchestra tuning up. Chords sounded dire, like a dying god from a Wagner opera. Plucked stringed instruments added to the texture, created a cloud of music that could mean many things to many ears. These unmelodic sounds had a meditative quality. Some listeners closed their eyes, although sleep was not possible. Soon a five-note scale emerged, repeated again and again, and then a counter-melody. And finally the brass entered. The rhythm suggested a determined processional that would not be stopped. And then everything got mellow and harmonic notes that sounded like classical Baroque music with the underbrush of a summer night. Soloists popped up, facing their colleagues and giving them a simple melody to imitate, which they did as much as their instruments would allow. Then each section slowly bowed out until all that remained was the humble squeal of a broken clarinet. And the conductor stopped completely and just stood with his hands folded before him. One journalist wrote, I felt as though I'd been in some place I'd never been before. It was this surreal spiritual quality to the whole performance. The next day after the symphony's performance, all the instruments were shipped off to be repaired. And so when they returned to school the next fall, the children in these schools opened the cases of their flutes and violins and found a note explaining how these wounded instruments were healed. It's a true story. You can look it up. Please do. And as I heard that story and then watched the videos, uh, I couldn't help but think of the dedication in the temple in the Old Testament. It goes back to Second. Chronicles chapter 7, it says the priests stood at their posts, the Levites also, with the instruments for music to the Lord that King David had made for giving thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. Whenever David offered praises by their ministry opposite them, the priests sounded trumpets, and all Israel stood. And then I thought of our text for today, Mark 3 and realized there was a tremendous number of parallels between broken and wounded instruments and broken and wounded people. And those parallels are not insignificant. After all, some of you could use a little blue duct tape. Some of you are missing parts, or maybe you have parts that just don't work as well as they used to. Some of you have deep wounds, and not all wounds can be seen. Some of you have been hurt in ways no bandage can cover. And I don't know if you were ever vandalized, but I do know there's more than one person in this room who's been abused. And I've often wondered if a few of you were just cracked. And when things happen to us, we have to learn how to play our notes, how to be ourselves a little bit differently from now on. And sometimes it takes more than a few tries. I think Jesus would have loved this orchestra. He loved broken and wounded instruments. Except his instruments were people, and they had names. 
And they came to him one day at the Sea of Galilee. And if we read our text carefully, we will see that some are healed. Some are healed, verses 7 through 10. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Jesus was incredibly popular at this point in his ministry. True, the political and religious groups were suspicious of Jesus, seeking every opportunity to catch him, to bring charges against him. But the common people heard him gladly. There was never anything like this in the land of Israel. There had been preachers before, but none like this. There had been people who claimed the powers of miracles, but none like this. And they're coming from all over the land, from Galilee and the north and west, from places like Nazareth, where Jesus had grown up, from Capernaum and all the little towns and villages that surround the Sea of Galilee, but also from down south, from Jerusalem, from across the River Jordan, even the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. Great multitudes, thousands of people. And they've traveled to Galilee, the northwest shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, most of them several days' journey. Some may have even taken a week or two to get there, bringing with them folks who were sick, folks who were paralyzed, folks with diseases, folks with leprosy, great multitudes of broken and wounded, ill and hurting people. And they're pressing in on Jesus. They're trying to get near him. They want to touch him. They've heard stories. And they've heard or seen the results of what he can do. Sadly, though understandably, it's clear from the text, the overwhelming desire of the crowds is not for Jesus' message, but for his healing touch. They're seeking to be relieved of their pain and suffering. In other words, they're more concerned with their broken bodies than their wounded souls. And yet in his compassion, Jesus began to heal the people coming to him uh, with diseases and all sorts of physical maladies. But it only causes the people to press against him even more eagerly, hoping to touch him and be healed. And in self-defense, he tells his disciples, keep a small boat ready on the shore in case he needs to escape the crush of the crowds. We're actually a lot like those people of Galilee. Our prayer requests tend to focus mostly on our physical problems and those we love. Of course, God made us physical beings, and we see throughout Scripture God's deeply concerned with the well-being of our bodies. The body is not a mere prison for the soul. It's not something to be despised. As Christians, we believe our bodies will be resurrected and reunited with our souls someday, so it is good for us to be concerned about the welfare of our bodies, but yet we're whole people, body and soul, and we shouldn't seek physical restoration without spiritual renewal. These things are not independent of each other. They're designed to work together. However, there's some in the crowd who have no desire to be healed. They're more than content with their broken bodies and wounded souls. And when they show up, we see that some are silenced, verses 11 and 12. 
Some are silenced. Adding to the pressure of the crowd wanting to be healed, the demonized show up, starting at verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. The unclean spirits are drawn by this strange fascination to see Jesus, even though they knew that he was their conqueror, the hated Son of God. Somehow these sinister, unclean spirits had brought bodily injury or psychological trauma or immense spiritual harm to their victims. And these unclean spirits would cast the bodies of their victims before Jesus, crying out with unearthly voices, You are the Son of God, in futile attempts to render him powerless. This is in accordance with the ancient belief that knowledge of the precise name or quality of a person conferred mastery over that person. And in response, Jesus forbids them to speak and casts them out and heals some of these people. Of course, in God's economy, no fallen spirit could possibly have power over the second person of the Trinity. So the demon shouting of Jesus' identity is pointless. When Jesus heard what the Spirit said, he sternly warned them not to make him known. It's not yet time for his divine identity to be proclaimed, so Jesus silenced them with a single command. And yet, I think we see here a foreshadowing of the final conflict between Christ and the forces of hell. Whenever hell collides with heaven, the inevitable result is silence. Whenever evil peers before God, its mouth is shut. Scripture tells us repeatedly that people appearing before God at the last judgment will place their hands over their mouths in his presence and will keep silent. No sinner has anything to say in the presence of a holy God. There's also something of a tragic irony here. For the demons know that Jesus is the Son of God. But the rest of the crowds are only thinking of him as some sort of miracle worker whom they can use for their own ends. And putting it all together, you have the ill and the feverish and the crippled are pushing and grabbing and falling all over Jesus. The demonized are maliciously sizing him up and are howling his name in verbal combat. The cynical Pharisees are watching his every move, waiting for their chance. And so Jesus really did feel immense pressure, inescapable stress and strain. And for us, that teaches us that Jesus was and is the one who understands us. In broadest terms, he understands the harried, frenetic lives of men and women today. He understands, for example, what Anne Morrow Lindeberg meant when she wrote, and this is beautiful, she wrote, the life I have chosen as a wife and mother entrains a whole caravan of complications. It involves food and shelter, meals planning, marketing, bills and making the ends meet in a thousand ways. It involves not only the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker, but countless other experts to keep my modern home with its modern simplifications, electricity, plumbing, refrigerator, stove, dishwasher, radios, car, and numerous other labor-saving devices functioning properly. It involves health, doctors, dentists, appointments, medicine, vitamins, trips to the drugstore. It involves education, 
spiritual, intellectual, physical, schools, school conferences, carpools, extra trips for basketball or orchestra practice, tutoring, camps, camp equipment, and transportation. It involves clothes, shopping, laundry, cleaning, mending, letting skirts down, and sewing buttons on or finding someone else to do it. It involves friends, my husband's, my children's, my own, and endless arrangements to get together, letters, invitations, telephone calls, and transportation hither and yon. Can any of you identify with that? Jesus understands that. He understands the pressured treadmill on which most of us race day in and day out. I think he would know what it's like when the traffic light turns green and the car behind you immediately begins to honk. But more specifically, he understands the pressures we feel when we're trying to reach out to others like he did. He knows that when you really care about others, you open yourself up to troubles virtually incomprehensible to those who don't care. He understands that those who stand with him are assaulted by a demonized culture which is constantly trying to gain mastery over us. He understands the pressures of a life of faith. And he knows that faith has to start somewhere. And for most people who follow Jesus, that starts when some are called. When some are called, verses 13 through 19. And he went up on the mountain and called to them those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boenerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Jesus would send them out as emissaries to the world and as such they would have special power and authority. After the arrival and indwelling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they would become his official witnesses and leaders of the new community known as the church. They're to preach his word with authority and gather his people into the church. Some of them would become inspired writers of the New Testament. We don't know the order in which Jesus calls out their names. All the lists in the Bible begin with Peter and end with Judas. But in between, the order changes. And today, every name on the list has a notable ring to it, even the least known. But when Jesus chose them, they were all unknowns. Except for Judas Iscariot, they were all country boys from Galilee. Four of them were fishermen. One was a notorious tax collector. None were famous or rich or noble or well-connected. There's no religious leaders among them, no scribes, no priests, no elders, no Pharisees. And they're all relatively poor. Luke would write about them that they were uneducated common men. There was nothing in them that deserved recognition. We went over this with the high school class this morning. We're going over the sermon text in a little more detail. And somebody said we would never choose these guys. And they're right. There's nothing in them that meant that they deserved being chosen as apostle. For the most part, they're unworthy men, seriously broken and deeply wounded. Simon Peter is the key figure. 
He's the leader of the group and often spoke for the disciples. Andrew is Peter's brother and is rarely mentioned. The only thing we know about him is he brought Peter to Jesus. In fact, the few times we see Andrew in the Gospels, he's always bringing someone to Jesus. Andrew is the patron saint of the Scottish Presbyterian Church. We sort of took that with us when we came from Scotland. That's why a lot of Presbyterian churches are called St. Andrews, and very few are called Saint anything else. James and John are brothers, both fishermen. James never appears apart from his brother John. Jesus calls them sons of thunder. These are the guys who, when Jesus was turned away from a Samaritan village, told Jesus to call down fire from heaven and burn the place to the ground. Which leads us to believe that James is sort of a passionate, aggressive guy. He's one of the first to be martyred. Herod captured both Peter and James in Acts 12. Peter he put in jail, but he chopped off James' head, obviously considering James to have been the bigger problem. John is an uncompromising man who loved Christ. He lived longer than any of the other apostles, and at the end of his life, after the rest of the New Testament was written, he sat down and penned the gospel, arguably the greatest letter ever written, three epistles, and the book of Revelation. He wrote extensively about the love of Christ because he'd experienced it firsthand, and when no eyewitnesses of Jesus were left to tell his story, John did. Philip is only mentioned a few times in the Gospels, and it's usually not very flattering. Most of the time, he's missing the point of whatever Jesus is teaching. It appears he has limited ability, inadequate faith, and an imperfect understanding of Jesus' power and grace. Bartholomew is listed elsewhere as Nathaniel. And in John 1, he sees a man of simple faith and little doubts. He's a student of scripture, a searcher of truth, and a seeker of God. And yet... This is the same Nathaniel who replied when first told about Christ, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And I always imagine that Mary responded, yes, my son. It's pretty clear that Nathaniel was prejudiced and biased against those who came from the outlying country villages. To put it in our language, he didn't like rednecks. And if you were from Nazareth, you qualified. At the same time, When Jesus first sees him in John 1, the text says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael Bartholomew appears to be that kind of person uh, where you knew where you stood, good or bad. He called him as he saw him, straight and to the point. Thomas is the disciple who will be forever remembered as having to be convinced of Jesus' resurrection. The few times Jesus talks to Thomas, he's trying to comfort him, strengthen him, encourage him. Apparently, Thomas is a pessimist and easily depressed, which probably accounts for his doubting the resurrection. Matthew, we've already met. He's Levi the tax collector, a professional extortionist. His calling is a complete surprise because everyone knew that he was a notorious sinner. But the wonderful thing about Matthew is the more is more than anyone else. He knew he was a big sinner, and so repentance came easy to him. James, the son of Alphaeus, a complete blank. We know virtually nothing about him. 
The only thing we know about him is his name. That's it. The book of James is written by James, the brother of Jesus, not this guy. It's not known if this James ever wrote anything. Nothing he ever said, asked, or did is recorded in the Bible. Just a nameless, faceless, ordinary guy. Thaddeus has a bunch of names. He's called Jude, Judas, the son of James, and Judas, not Iscariot, and all the other lists. He only appears outside of the list once in John 14, and he asks Jesus a question because he doesn't understand what Jesus is trying to teach. And that's all we know about him. Though it's possible he wrote the book of Jude, we just don't know for sure. Simon the Zealot, also called Simon the Canaanite, is a political nationalist who hated the Romans and hated everyone who worked for the Romans, meaning people like Matthew. The zealots are the guys who fought the Romans wherever and whenever they could. They were hot-headed patriots who saw the coming Messiah as a conquering king who would lead them against the Romans. The zealots were wiped out at Masada when they committed uh, mass suicide. Actually, they didn't all commit suicide. They basically killed each other until there was one guy left and he committed suicide. Rather than be captured by the Romans... When the Romans finally took Masada after a long siege, they found everyone was dead. Simon's not a meek, mild-mannered guy. And of course, we all know Judas Iscariot, infamous for his betrayal of Jesus. Think about that. He accepted this call from Christ. He walked with him for a number of years. And for some reason... The Lord Jesus Christ, the power of his word, the gospel of his grace ended up meaning nothing. He never produced any fruit that lasts. And when we read of the years that they walk with Jesus, if you read the gospels, we quickly see these men lacked spiritual understanding, lacked humility, lacked faith, lacked commitment. There is no way at face value that these guys are going to amount to much. They're unworthy men, seriously broken and deeply wounded. These guys don't get along. They don't understand each other. They don't want to work together. They have little in common. And yet, Jesus called them. <coughs> and they went on to form the nucleus of a band of brothers that conquered the world with grace. And when we get to heaven, in the new heavens, in the new Jerusalem, this ordinary group of guys are going to find their names engraved on the 12 foundations of the new Jerusalem as seen in Revelation 21. How's that happen? It happens because the only common bond they had was Jesus. When God calls ordinary men and women to follow him, his call is always effectual. It always changes people. It always brings grace. And it doesn't depend on the knowledge, skills, or abilities of those people. Let me close with one last story of broken and wounded getting healed and becoming whole by grace. At the age of 36, she was a recently tenured professor in the Center for Women's Studies at Syracuse University. She and her lesbian partner were members of a Unitarian Universalist church where she was the coordinator of the gay and lesbian advocacy group. 
Up to this point in her life, she said the only Christians she knew were intellectually impaired. They were the kind of people who sent me hate mail or people who carried signs at gay pride parades that read, God hates fags. But her negative image of Christians would radically change when she met a local pastor named Ken and his wife, Flo. Floy, I think that's pronounced. Eventually, that friendship led to her conversion to Christ, but here's how she describes her first encounter with authentic Christians. I remember being conscious of my butch haircut and the gay and pro-choice bumper stickers on my car. I remember awkwardly greeting my hosts at the door and pulling out of my bag two gifts, a bottle of good red wine and a box of strong tea. I wanted to get to know these people, but not at the expense of compromising my moral standards. My lesbian identity and culture and its values mattered a lot to me. I came to my culture and its values through life experience, but also through much research and deep thinking. I like Ken and Floyd immediately because they seem sensitive to that. During our meal, I remember holding my breath and waiting to be punched in the stomach with something grossly offensive. I believed at this time that God was dead and that if he was ever alive, the fact of poverty, violence, racism, sexism, homophobia, and war was proof that he didn't care about his creation. But Ken's God seemed alive, three-dimensional, and wise if firm. And Ken and Floyd were anything but intellectually impaired. Ken and Floyd did something in that meal that has a long Christian history. They invited the stranger in. Not to scapegoat me, but to listen and to learn and to dialogue. We didn't debate worldview. They were willing to walk the long journey with me in Christian compassion. During our meal, they did not share the gospel with me. After our meal, they did not invite me to church. And because of these glaring omissions to the Christian script, as I had come to know it, When the evening ended and Ken said he wanted to stay in touch, I knew it was safe to accept his open hand. Since this beginning, the journey on which the Lord has taken me has been a great adventure, and this simple meal in a simple home was the first leg of the journey. Before I ever stepped foot in a church, I spent two years meeting with Ken and Floyd, and on and off studying scripture in my own heart. Ken knew at the time I couldn't come to church. It would have been too threatening, too weird, too much. So Ken was willing to bring the church to me. I'm guessing that by now you have figured out the woman who wrote that was Rosaria Butterfield. Her testimony is quite well known. You can read it in her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And many of you know, but many may not, that Rosaria attended our church for a while while her husband, Kent, who's a pastor, was between calls and working a secular job. He used to sit right over there next to the Zollenhofers. And she sat there and with her husband and her kids. She was going through an adoption process with some of her kids at the time. And Rosaria and Kent came to us quite wounded, needing to heal from a failed church plant. Few people knew. And at that time, only a few of us knew her story. The majority of the church did not. And hers is a story of how God heals broken and wounded instruments. 
God still heals broken and wounded instruments. Jesus loves broken and wounded instruments. I'm going to pick on a few of our musicians. Jesus loved broken violins named Tom and cracked cellos named Sarah. A bass missing a few strings named Gail. And a badly out of tune keyboard named Eli. But the great glory of God's call is that being broken and wounded is the opportunity for God to demonstrate his power. Our ordinariness makes room for his extraordinariness. The Apostle Paul makes this clear in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We're the jars of clay, frail, fragile people, broken, wounded instruments. But we contain treasure, the gospel of God's grace as it's found in Jesus Christ. The gospel is committed to broken and wounded people so that the power and strength that comes forth will be seen as God's and not our own. An awareness of our own sin and weakness brings us closer to Christ and makes us more dependent on Christ. And again, Paul brings this out very clearly in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, each time God said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in your weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may work through me. Since I know it is all for Christ's good, I am quite content with my weaknesses and with insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We need to embrace this great truth. For the ordinary people God has used have always lived with the reality that they are clay. When they met Christ, they became conscious of all their sins and weaknesses. But rather than focus on the sins and weaknesses, they turned away from them and relied on God. And it was out of this dependence on God that his great power is seen. Remember, the apostles were broken and wounded men, unworthy and undeserving. But as God chooses to show his grace to the unworthy, so grace will be seen as grace. It's precisely because we're unworthy that grace is grace. We need to embrace this great truth. For the ordinary people God has used, again, have always lived with the reality that they are clay. But we focus on how, we don't focus on how broken and wounded we are. We turn away from ourselves and instead we rely on God. And it's out of that dependence that his great power is seen. And it's in that dependence that we can trust God. And we can preach the gospel. Because after all, you've been called. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our savior. Thank you that you have given us a king your Son, our Savior. Thank you for giving us a picture of what it means to be a Christian. There are a number of us right now who probably don't even realize we're being called 
because our lives seem to be such a mess. But it could be you're trying to teach us that your strength is made perfect in weakness. It could be you're trying to get us to see just how broken and wounded we really are, so we'll see how much we really need you. So, Father, I pray the people here this morning will realize they're being sought by you and that they would answer your call. Father, forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for being afraid to admit our sins and shortcomings. Forgive us for how we're sometimes proud of being broken and wounded. And work in each of us this year as we live with Mark, a follower of Jesus, as we hear what he hears, given to him by eyewitnesses of Christ. Thank you for this story of amazing grace. Thank you for the glimpses we get of Jesus and his grace towards sinners like us. Give us, we pray, the faith to believe that we can do and be whatever Jesus asks us to do and be. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and in your word and in this gospel to draw us ever closer to your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.